Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I am joined by Shannon Gregoire. Currently, Shannon is a third-year veterinary student at Western University, and she's done a number of different projects, which we'll get into, including doing some things on social media I think are interesting, working with Vet Candy, and she is an aspiring practice owner, which again is music to my ears. For those that listen, obviously know that that's something that I'd love to get into, especially being someone that is still a student and having that aspiration, I think is interesting. And yeah, so that's going to be the conversation. That's where we're going to take it today. Shannon, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah. Hi, Isaiah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this was great. And initially, I saw you share something. I think it was specifically Vet Candy. And it was after I'd interviewed Dr. Chatfield and started following Vet Candy closer. And I was like, man, that's interesting. And then I looked into a little bit about you and I was like, we got to connect and glad this happened. So thank you. Yeah, me too. It's awesome. You know, it's a small world. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I always tell people is there's a lot of different veterinarians and a lot of people in the industry, but it still seems like it's very much a tight knit community where people know people. And while it can feel very big, there's a lot of people that can help make a connection to get to someone else. So I think the power of networking, and we'll certainly get into that a little bit as well plays a big role in kind of helping you get to where you want to go and also learning a lot early on because you can hear from a lot of mentors and people that have done some of the things and understand like, what do you want to avoid? And then what do you want to tackle and jump into? So I wanted to start with just a little bit about you. And so if you want to give a kind of a high level overview of where you're at today, and then I wanted to chat a little bit about just you in our first kind of call, you talked about moving from one coast to living kind of out near Boston to LA area for school and just the way that happened and kind of why you chose Western, but also moving out there with no one else. That certainly like, it wasn't like there's family friends or someone that you knew. And then kind of how did you navigate that personally? And has it helped you grow a little bit? Do you learn anything about yourself? So take that however you want. There's a lot there, but yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a pretty long story. So I'll try to touch on all those points you mentioned. So I grew up in like a suburban rural type area in the middle of Massachusetts, about an hour outside Boston. I grew up with a hobby farm. We had everything from horses, dogs, cats, chickens. We did maple syrup. We do honeys with apiaries. So we kind of touched on a whole bunch of things and always had a big garden. So that kind of agriculture animal background was something that I just grew up with and feel very fortunate to have experienced. And I just wanted to be a veterinarian since I could remember. All my parents tell me that I asked for when I was little was a cow and a horse. So I got the latter. I got the horse. (laughs) But first, they made me raise chickens and sell the eggs to prove that I was responsible enough to take care of a bigger animal with more extensive needs. So they really like built that hardworking, determined little girl into a hardworking veterinary student now. But yeah, I applied through the VimCast selection my senior year of undergrad. I went to UMass Amherst out in Western Mass. Loved it there. The great pre-veterinary program. And I was applying for schools. And as much as I love Massachusetts, I'd never lived anywhere else. I traveled a lot through New England and on the East Coast, but I'd never been to the West Coast. So I was kind of trying to broaden my horizons a little bit when I applied to veterinary school. So I applied to some local and then a couple just on the coast, east and west coast is places that I thought I wanted to live because you have to be at that vet school for four years. So you have to take that into consideration. Like, where could I see myself not only studying and learning, but also living for four years? 
So I applied to Western and I love the school. So the program and everything, it's completely different from any other veterinary school in the country, which is, I'll get into why I chose them a little bit later, but I didn't really think that I would be moving to California. I was interested in the school and everything, but I was like, oh, it seems so nice. I visited, loved it, but I still didn't ever think it would actually become a reality. (laughs) So then when I got my acceptance letter, it was the first one I got and I was like, oh my God, I think this might be a sign just to move somewhere else, to live somewhere else and experience new things that were completely unfamiliar to me, but I had to do it all by myself. So (laughs) I packed up my luggage and flew from Boston to Ontario in the, I think it was August of 2018. Yep. And I just got off the plane and got an Uber to the new apartment that I found through mutual friends. I actually knew a girl that went to my undergrad and I had reached out to her after I got my acceptance letter. And I was like, Hey, I want to go to Western. Can you help me find housing? I didn't know anyone. And we had been like mutual friends for a little while. So I was like, maybe she can help me find someone. And she connected me with some second and third year students that needed someone to live with them. And I was like, sure, like sign the lease. Here I go. So (laughs) drop me off in California and I get to this house and I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything there. I actually Amazon shipped a mattress and a bed frame to this house. (laughs) And it was on the front door when I arrived. So there was just me and my bed frame and everything that I packed with me. And that was it. I didn't know anybody, didn't have any family or friends in the area. So it was terrifying, actually, but I just took the leap. I guess I'm one of those people that loves trial by fire, as crazy as that might sound. I think I grow the most and the quickest when I have to, when I have to push myself to quote unquote survive in this new environment that I didn't really know anything about. And I was nice enough to meet some friends and had my roommates and, uh, kind of taxied me around for the first month that I was there until I was finally able to get a lease on a car. So I do have a vehicle for the last two and a half years now. But yeah, it was definitely like scary at first, at least, but it was fun. Like I got myself through it and just stayed calm and I'll figure it out. Like whatever I have to do, I'll just figure it out because I have to. But it was really great because I learned that I could be extremely self-sufficient, learned how to do like everything myself, like negotiated my first big financial contract in that car lease. And I just had to juggle that with learning a whole new way of curriculum. At Western, it's not didactic. It's problem-based learning, which is basically they don't give you anything, which is fine because I've always had to work hard. But going from a didactic curriculum in my undergrad, where you just have lectures and they give you study guides and you kind of just do the thing, this was you actually have to go into textbooks and find the answer. And I don't know about how everybody else went through undergrad, but they usually just like pretty much lined it up for you and dotted your I's and crossed your T's. And so this is what you need to know. And Western was like, uh, nope, this is kind of like your baseline, but you're expected to know all the things. Like, all right, that's uh, quite a high bar there. And not going to lie, that first half of the fall semester was probably the most difficult because it was the biggest learning curve, huge exponential learning curve, because you have to get used to going into a textbook, reading them, synthesizing the information and being able to present it in your group as that quote unquote, like topic expert. So everyone was assigned different things. 
for each problem and you all have to come and discuss it. So you don't realize how much you have to understand a topic for you to be able to present it and communicate it clearly enough for other people to also learn from you. So it was a huge learning curve, but I love it and don't regret it at all because I know that I can find the answer to absolutely any problem, veterinary or otherwise. Like if I don't know something, I know I can absolutely find the answer or find someone to talk to to get that answer without a problem because I've had to do that for the last two and a half years now. And it's fine. Like if I don't know something, I can get the answer in like five minutes, which is fantastic. I love being self-sufficient. I love not having to be dependent on anyone else by myself for those issues. Like if I need help, I don't have any issue reaching out to get it, but that I can also like be confident enough to ask questions and not be afraid to ask for help when you do need it and to get your faculty's opinion on something because there can be contradicting information. So it's really good to have that real world experience to kind of clear the fog for you. So you get that fuller picture because a textbook is a textbook, but you need that extra fluff of real world to kind of make it all make sense. So yeah, I've lived out here for two and a half years, almost three years now. And I definitely love my decision. It's gorgeous weather out here. It's currently (laughs) 25 degrees, I think, back home. And uh, it's a cozy 70 right now. So that's pretty nice. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I want to come back to talk a little bit about skills and thinking about as you transition into a practitioner and leave school. Before I do that, a couple different things that you mentioned early on from like back home. First, kind of horse that you had. That's always a question when I hear something like that. Can you tell us about the horse you had? I don't think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but my sister had a quarter horse. And then when she went, she had to take a trip for, she did a missions trip for like six months. I took care of the horse for a while. So I have a little bit of experience. By no means am I equine literate when it comes to everything else, but I have a little bit of knowledge. Quarter horses are great. I love them. I had some friends that did a lot of Western competitions with their quarter horses, but we actually have two Morgans and I found them through mutual friends when I was younger, taking lessons and everyone kind of talks in the horse world too. Ended up finding this five-year-old mare, uh, Morgan mare. Her name was Bella before the Twilight Saga. So her name was that before I found her and we just kind of fell in love with her. It's kind of like, you know, how people get a puppy or a kitten and they say the animal picks them. Well, she like picked me because we just got along so well and were able to communicate perfectly. So spent a lot of time together, did a lot of competitions, especially when I was younger. And my mom ended up getting her paddock mate, (laughs) which was another Morgan. So that's how we ended up with two because my mom was just always around her and fell in love with her. The horses are best friends too. They love each other. But yeah, it was crazy just how things work out. It's like, there's always a plan behind everything. So she taught me a lot and got me really interested in equine medicine too. And I had to deal with a lot of random hour equine veterinarian house calls. (laughs) As you know, she just always wants to get into something and just keeps me on my toes, but definitely a good learning experience as well. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And the other thing that you mentioned when I just asked before, like just trying to figure out topics, and you kind of mentioned it, is around honey. So can you talk a little bit about one of the things that you shared around medical grade honey? I thought this was interesting. Yeah. So it's really amazing that now we're starting to finally get research and like companies that actually make medical grade honey, because like growing up, we have the apiaries and the bees and bees kind of scare me, but my parents are so good with them. (laughs) 
I'll wear the suit if I go around because I still get a little nervous, but they can go in and they just know how to read the apiary and they're able to go in and check on them and not even wear a suit because if you're not aggressive, you're not threatening to the bees then they don't mind you at all there, which is amazing. And when I was a sophomore, sophomore or junior in undergrad, I did actually a summer externship at the Tufts University in Grafton at their wildlife clinic. Loved it there. Did about three months with them. And what they did with some of their raptors when they had like infections on their feet was they actually did honey bandages. Blew my mind. Never knew that was a thing before this internship. I was like, what do you mean? Like, why honey? And so they were talking about it and how it provides like the nutrients for healing and it keeps the wound moist and has all these other medicinal properties that they're now starting to study more that it provides like an amazing environment for healing, especially with really intense bacterial infections. So they would change them daily and apply new honey. This Manuka honey is what they use at the time. And they would bandage it all up, leave them just hanging out, resting, recovering. And then the next day they would anesthetize the birds again and redo the bandages. And it was amazing. They would heal fantastic, better than like any other antibiotic cream that they had. So they just started using the honey all the time. So when I saw the articles and all the research with the medicinal honey, it was super exciting because now they have actually tested and like proved bandages, honey infused bandages. They have like all these solves and creams and things that you can use. And it really works wonders with different types of infections and it just heals amazing. And it's crazy that we've had this for so long, but now it's finally becoming more mainstream for veterinarians to use it in their clinics. Yeah. And it kind of goes in tandem another direction. And again, I promise I'll get back to the other questions, but this is an interesting <laughs> topic too, like just yeah. CD and the whole idea of cannabis, not only from vet med perspective, but even in human health and just all the studies and research around that. Again, I've tried and I'm still working on getting someone to come talk about that, but it is hard to get someone to commit to do that just because there's a lot of different things. But any thoughts around what you've seen? I know there's some research, but not a ton out there. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on that? Yeah. And it's tricky because of the federal like litigation of it. It's still a schedule one, which lines it up with horrible things like these awful drugs that cause a lot of pain and harm to people. And it's still federally in that category. So it's tough because some states have it legal. And then in California, we're allowed to, we're allowed to talk about it, but not like allowed to advise it. The litigation is kind of all over the place and it's confusing to a lot of people. So no one really wants to like come out and like really talk about it. And there's also not a lot of research on it yet because of the schedule that it still is. Like it's really limited in what we can study until that drops probably into a schedule two drug where we can actually, where the government says that it's able to have some medicinal purpose. So that'll be the big step in really figuring out what we can do with CBD and products that come from the cannabis plant. I know in clinics, there are a lot of times that people see like a THC overdose in dogs. That is quite common that we see in states with a more lax legality around the plant. But CBD products, people use them and some say, oh, we love them. Most some say, oh, you know, it didn't do anything. So it's hard to tell because there aren't any standards and there aren't any prescribing like, oh, 10 milligrams per kg for whatever, like anxiety or something like there's no guidelines really 
for veterinarians to use yet. So everyone's kind of tiptoeing around it because we don't have anything solid to really be able to recommend this when we don't know the extent of how it affects the animals or people really. So it's in that kind of startup phase where everyone's just pet parents are using it or not using it in conjunction with or separate from normal medicine. And we're all just seeing what happens, but we don't really have a foundation, a solid foundation to actually push it forward yet. We need more science, definitely. Yeah, I think it's something that people definitely need to explore. I've had conversations with non-DVM friends, family, clients around that, just curiosity around just the whole topic itself. And some people have shared, yeah, I use it with my pets. I don't talk about it necessarily with a veterinarian. For the, Obviously, that's my next question. Oh, did you talk to your veterinarian? And again, depending on the state, it's a lot of times like, no, I don't really want to bring that up because they can't really talk about it anyways. But I think there is interest and demand. And once it gets, again, more information and something that you feel confident in from research and from medically backed facts and figures, people want to talk about it and they'll be open to it. And so I'd encourage people as they can expand their horizons on that topic, that it would be time well spent. So that's just my own little Isaiah study. That's probably not <laughs> not enough of a sample size to be relevant. But anyways, yeah. sharing just your story, going back to that and rewinding a little bit and jumping around. But Mm. You talked about some of the different things around how difficult it is to communicate what's going on with the learning style at Western if you don't truly understand the core concepts. And I think that's really interesting to think about that because when you try to distill it down or write something or have any sort of conversation, if you can't explain to someone else, it's like, okay, there's gaps in my knowledge. What do you think for you and maybe others as you look out like an important skill to develop as you become that practitioner? being out in space with clients and patients? Like, what do you think is one of those big skills that either you feel like you've developed or are working on developing? Yeah, I mean, always working on developing the communication that I think is super important because one of the things that they really emphasize in school is basically you're learning a new language, right? When you go into medicine, you have all these new terms and all this crazy jargon that all of a sudden you need to know how to use it, what it means, and then also how to communicate with your peers and your faculty. And that's great. And it's like a whole new world of language to use. But also you have to know how to then reverse it and go back to layman's terms. So it's kind of like learning a language twice, if that makes sense. You have to learn all this medical jargon, but then you have to also learn how to backtrack and break it down again so that your clients can understand you. And so I think that is usually where the disconnect in communication happens because school focuses so much on that medical terminology and like, use it, use it, use it. Like we use all these terms that anyone outside of a medical profession is not going to know what it is, but we can talk about it for hours. So good understanding of concepts comes through when you can then break it down backwards and make it into simpler terms again, so that you're still conveying all that good information, but in a way that someone who's not in the medical field can understand. And even if you relate it to humans, that seems to be super helpful too, because a lot of times like cancer in pets, you can relate it to like cancer in humans and draw on similarities or things like that and how treatment works. And there's a lot of similarities between the two. So I think that people usually have a better idea of human medicine, of course, so that sometimes relating them the client helps them understand and then just 
being able to allow them to ask questions. So kind of breaking it down using topics of communication where you're like repeating back to them, you're asking them to ask questions, you're doing open-ended questions so that they can answer more than a yes or no, so that you can really gauge where your client is in understanding so that you can then fill the holes in communication because that's huge. And at Western, we're lucky enough to get a communication class that focuses really on that client-patient communication. But that is where I think lawsuits and other difficulties that come in the veterinary profession when people get angry, it's because they don't understand. Somewhere along the line, like there's a communication disconnect. And if you really kind of try to focus on that and be as clear as possible, as clear as you can all the time, then that will definitely open the door for better medicine and better communication and allow the client to really see the value in that communication, but also see the value in that medicine that a lot of times people don't always understand why we're doing things or why we don't always have an answer with all this screening or all this treatment that we're doing because medicine is practice and it's not perfect, but you have to be forthcoming with that information and let them know that you're working with them. We're trying to get an answer and sometimes it's not always easy, but if you let them know that and try to give them an honest expectation of what you're trying to do, then a lot of times they're more willing to accept the outcome and what happens with that. Have you taken the communications class yet? Yes, we have in our first two years. Biggest takeaway from that class? And if it's exactly what you just said, that's fine. But is there anything that you could distill down that was the biggest takeaway? The biggest takeaway is to empathize, I think. And to really, like if this was your dog or your cat or whatever it is, Like, how would you want to know what was going on? How would you want to be told this information and tell it to your client like that? Perfect. Thank you. Let's talk about social media and vet candy and how that all kind of came together. Because you've done some other podcasts because initially when I reach out, I like to try to get people that have never done another podcast because then it's reaching new audiences, someone's unique story and voice. So done some of those things before, but how did that all kind of come to fruition? Like, how did vet candy find you? How did you find vet candy? Like, how did that all come together? It's a extremely small world, right? So yeah, through social media, I had seen Vet Candy a little bit, started following them. And then Dr. Lopez, Jill Lopez reached out to me on their social media platform and said, oh, hey, do you want to maybe like work on a podcast with us? Be like a guest on one of our shows. And I was like, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I was interviewed by Dr. Courtney Campbell for a segment in one of their shows. So that was really awesome. And we just stayed in contact. I love that whole Vet Candy family. They're so nice. And they've really become mentors to me, especially Jill. She's been fantastic, like taking me under her wing, really, and showing me a lot about like what she does with Vet Candy. And then we just stayed in contact. This was actually January of 2020. Yeah, beginning of this year. And then COVID happened in March and my summer externship plans kind of crumbled like, you know, everything kind of did. And she reached out to me again and said, hey, are you doing anything this summer? I was like, well, not really anymore. (laughs) And she offered me an internship position with her with like a social media marketing background with helping her with vet candy and like production side and writing and all that fun stuff. So I was like, Oh, yeah, that'd be like a great opportunity for me to learn. So I helped them with their rebrand, I helped them with articles and reading and kind of pushing out information for vet candy, which was awesome. And I learned a lot. I read a lot of scientific papers, because one of the things they do is they have really succinct, easy to read, like synopsis of new articles and research that comes out. 
So I helped a lot and read a lot of those and wrote with her for those. And yeah, I loved it. I had meetings with Jill and I met Jen and all of them. So they're all super nice and really welcoming and helpful. And I actually have a lot of recent research in my head from all that. So it was a really beneficial internship. And I got to see a whole different side of veterinary medicine with it, which I really enjoyed because I love medicine. But as you said before, I have like this interest in the business side and like the other aspects of veterinary medicine that are super interesting. So I did that with her over the summer. And then we just kind of kept in touch. And when she says, oh, could you do this for me? Or could you do that for me? And she finds like little jobs for me to do with vet candy. And I love it. I love working with them. And it's been a really fantastic journey with her. And she just released the other day that we're starting the Vet Candy Life video series. So I'll have a couple episodes where there's a segment by me and those. So those will come out in the next few weeks. Super excited. Had a lot of fun filming those. So yeah, it was just like this crazy turn of events. And I ended up loving it and had so much opportunity through them. Met a lot of other vet students and a lot of other professionals through that and through LinkedIn. So it's been a crazy journey. You never know what's going to happen. And when these little things come about, you're like, wow, like my life's so different just because she reached out and shot me a message on Instagram. Like that's crazy to me that that happened. It is really cool when you see social media be so beneficial and you can see the good things that come from social media. Again, everyone knows like there are certainly down downfalls to any and all social media, but there are ways to make the world feel a lot smaller and have interactions with people that you would never have an opportunity to do before. And they can like kind of check you out prior and be like, oh, I'm really interested. This person has some cool things that they say or they do or how they think about the world is unique. And that can build a relationship that even though you've maybe never met in person or it's prior to meeting a person, you can have a kind of close and tight relationship, which is really cool. So I appreciate you sharing that. And one of the things I think that caught my eye was one of the articles you wrote, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was how to use social media or how to think about it. Mm. I'm trying to remember the exact title, but that was what initially I think showed me who you were like. And again, it was a shorter article, but I was like, Oh, that's really mm-hmm. interesting. And I was like, okay, who is this person that wrote this? That's mm-hmm. like, I'm curious. And always looking to have people on that I think have unique stories and an angle on what they do. So talking a little bit about the practice ownership piece. And again, in our first conversation, I think I have a little bit of an understanding. Maybe it's just the way that your family and the way that you were raised a little bit on why ownership is more attractive. But can you talk about why you are interested in owning your own practice in a world where everyone tells you you have too much student loan debt, corporate consolidators are going to eat your lunch, you can't compete? Like, what does that look like? And how do you think about ownership in the future? Yeah, that's a great point. So you're right. When I grew up, my mom still has her own business, has my entire life growing up. My uncles on both sides, both my grandfathers, like most of my family is small business owners more than associates, you could say, for like my entire life. So I always grew up with it. And I knew, yes, there's so much great to owning a business and running your own business, but it's also a lot of work. My mom sacrificed a lot, a lot of late nights and a lot of work to have this business, but it pays off. So I was never afraid of hard work and never afraid of daunting tasks because I know that if you set your mind to it and you really have a passion for it, there's nothing you can't do. So that kind of drove me to want my own veterinary practice. And it's, yeah, you can say you have a lot of student loan debt. I'll certainly have a lot of student loan debt, but the best way to pay that off is to own a business. There are so many things that you can do and grow as a business owner that you can 
out earn an associate's salary by owning a business. And I don't want to downplay how much work that's going to be. You know, an associate comes in and they leave and that's it. That's not what a business owner does. It never really leaves. Like you're always working with this business, holidays, weekends, after hours, like you're doing that extra work, but in the end it does pay off. And I think sometimes with the corporate veterinary medicine, there's opinions both ways, good and bad on all that stuff, but there's still room for those independent practices. And I think that's what led me more to veterinary medicine than human medicine in the beginning, because there's more of an opportunity to be a business owner where doctors all work in big hospital conglomerates now. And that wasn't something that I wanted to do. I like the small business. I like supporting Americans with a vision and a plan and what they want to do. And they can really change the community. And it becomes like a big uplifting thing when you can employ people in your community, you can bring wealth and money into a system that maybe didn't have it before. You can educate the people that you work with. You can have technicians that go on to become more veterinarians and keep spreading that. And I think that's amazing. And you can talk to all these like young, hopeful veterinarians, like the little kid I once was, and kind of form their future a little bit. And I think that's crazy. And the opportunity to be a leader in that way is to really like uplift people around you. Not so really like, yeah, you have to make everything work and give people jobs and kind of dictate how the business is run. But it's really to uplift the people around you and make them better at their job, better at being people and communicators and all that stuff. And really help them grow. So I was listening to that podcast, I think you posted about a little while ago, like the leadership, or like the thoughts of leadership or something like that. And I was really taking notes I'm like, wow, that's what I want. Like, I want to be able to be successful and lead my own business, but also show other people how because I think if more people knew how to go about building a business that they would because who doesn't want to build that community and build that success for you and the people around you because then everyone's happier everyone enjoys their life more when they're feel needed and feel like they're important and valued in that community and it's something that can really change your life and pay off your debt absolutely so you don't have to be an associate if you don't want to like there's nothing wrong with that and you can absolutely be an associate and work that like nine to five. And if that's for you, then sure. But if it's not, then it's absolutely something you can do. Be a business owner and banks love loaning to veterinarians, even if they do have a house worth of loans when they graduate, they're still a really safe bet for banks to loan to. So it's when you start researching it, it's actually not as daunting as it seems once you start to educate yourself on the process. I couldn't say any better. Like I'll probably point <laughs> thinks about it to like this section of this podcast, if they think through it, because I go back to veterinary medicine is so resilient. You go back to different points where there's been recessions or trouble in the United States. So let's just think about the great financial crisis. Veterinary medicine did really well. COVID did really well. The tech rack in the early 2000s did really well, where there's some other businesses that certainly didn't do nearly as well. And like you said, you kind of control your own destiny a little bit more where if I have a dollar and I want to invest in the future to get to retirement, that dollar that you put back into your own skill set, a lot of times will have a higher return than it's going to do anywhere else. So I 100% endorse that. And I think if anyone has that itch for ownership, they should absolutely scratch it or at least explore it. Spend some time, talk to people. You don't have to do it alone. And that was going to be one of my questions. Like, do you envision being a solo? Do you have aspirations of bringing on a partner? 
have you thought that far or is it just still like, again, I know you're still in school. Like there's just so many things beyond that, but I would agree with you that it is not as far fetched in like this impossible task and this mountain that's so tall that only elite few will ever do it because veterinary medicine is profitable. There's a reason why private equity and all these consolidators have all this money and are paying a crazy amount for these businesses. It's because it's profitable and they're doing it to go lose money. So I think people need to understand that. And when people, when I say people, I mean, young veterinarians, you are the future. This doesn't happen without you. So dictate how you want that to be on your own terms, whether that's as an associate, like you talked about negotiating your car lease, negotiate what you're getting paid, negotiate your hours, build and structure the lifestyle that you want. And you would be surprised how many opportunities there are. I'm fortunate enough where I've had conversations. They're not all clients, but seeing people be able to monetize some of their hard work, like what they've been able to sell their practices for at young ages, like it's staggering, staggering the amount of money that's in veterinary medicine. And again, it's not about making a bunch of money. That's not the (laughs) goal. What I'm telling you is, and what Shannon, you just talked about is Mm -hmm. it's like this burden and you just cannot think about how to get away from it. And oh, I'll never be able to pay it off. Ownership is that path that can get you there. So there's a plenty of great resources. I always tell people, if you're thinking about it, best place to start when you're looking for resources, go to Vet Partners. So I'm a Vet Partner member, tons of great people in that organization. So if you're listening to this, thinking about it, that's the place that I would direct people, whether you're trying to figure out who's a lender, who could be a CPA, who's a consultant, like who are these people that can help me? That's a great spot. So there are a lot of people out there to help you. You don't have to do it all yourself. Exactly, exactly. And then the AVMA has a lot of resources too. If you dig through their website, you can actually find a lot of really helpful stuff. Yeah. So I don't know exactly how it's going to go. I'm not sure if it'll be like a solo venture or it'll be a more like a contract to work for them and then eventually own. I figured you got to have a little spice to life and (laughs) figure out how that goes slowly. I don't want to cross anything off the list yet or know exactly what my path is going to take. Because if I did that, I wouldn't believe that I was going to be in California for school. So things kind of just happen in crazy ways. So I know that my ultimate goal is to own. I haven't really lined out how that's going to go yet. So I'm just trying to see what happens and definitely pushing towards that goal, like looking more towards working with individual practices or practices with veterinarians that are open to either having you expand and run one of their clinics first. So kind of just take baby steps up, but that trial by fire is kind of my thing, Isaiah. (laughs) So if I had to go out of school and a couple years out, you know, plopped with this business that I now had to run all by myself, I think it would definitely be a challenge, but I could do it. And I know that I'd have family and friends absolutely willing to lend a hand and help me get that started. But if you have an interest in it, like definitely check it out because it's only crazy until it's done. And it's definitely practice ownership isn't that crazy. So it shouldn't be that hard to do it. And it's not. So you just got to know what information you're looking for. Kind of write down a list of why do I want to own a business and kind of list those out and say, okay, well, these are my why. So what's my how? How am I going to do this? Where do I want to live? What kind of animals do I want to practice with? What does that clinic to you look like? Like, What's the path that you want to take? And then you start looking for those types of situations. There's a lot of veterinarians that are getting ready to retire in the near future. It's crazy. Like we need so many new veterinarians. The new salaries for new grads is crazy. A lot of times it's over six figures, which is amazing. That's 
what this industry needs for us to be able to pay off that debt when we first get out of school. But a lot of these clinics are looking for people who are interested in business so that they can kind of have that in the back of their head, like, oh, this person, maybe I could train them to take over my place because I want to retire in three, five, seven years or whatever that timeline is for them. And they're looking for someone to kind of groom into that position. So it's all just knowing your why and then your how, and then going to find both those things. So you either with social media, with LinkedIn, with all these job boards and everything like that, kind of look into it and check out these practices. What are they about? Are they a corporate? Are they individually owned? And kind of figure out what that is and reach out to them and see if they're hiring in the future. Like I graduate in the spring of 2022 and I've already been just putting it out there a little bit, talking to clinics and different organizations, you know, hey, this is what I'm looking for. I want mentorship or I'm looking for benefits or I'm looking for XYZ salary. Just to kind of put that out there, even though it's super early, is never a bad thing. And if they know you're looking and you keep in contact with these people or these organizations, then you never know what can present itself in the future. If they see something and think of you, then that's perfect. That's exactly what you want to happen. So you just kind of want to see what your path might look like. You don't have to know exactly. Like I have no idea <laughs> what it, my path is going to look like exactly. No one does, I don't think. But a vague image is all you need. And then you kind of make decisions to lead you into that. And then eventually it'll come to fruition. It'll be like, wow, like, look at this. This is crazy. I now own four practices in the greater Seattle area. Who knows? It's just, you have to start somewhere. Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone, especially interacting with baby boomers that are owners that are thinking about retiring. There's been a lot of transactions that were supposed to happen that didn't actually end up that way because it was all a promise or it was a conversation. And again, that's tough because a lot of times people just want to say, well, don't you trust me? I would encourage you, like, if that's the ultimate goal that someone's going to retire in, you know, five, seven years, which is a good time to be talking to them. Because if you try to catch them in three or less, a lot of times you're not going to be able to pay the price for that practice most of the time, unless it's a one or two doc more rural practice. But if it's multiple doctors bigger, you need a plan and they need a plan that's going to be like multi year and you're going to buy in in chunks, most likely, because it's hard to go out and say, yeah, I'm going to go buy this clinic for the same amount that a consolidator can pay. Because you're never going to match that, but you can match it in other ways, especially if it's important for someone to transition it in a manner and they have that relationship with you. It takes time. So yeah, if someone says they want to retire in two years, like it's not going to be you, you're probably going to just get misled and you're going to end up having a lot more heartbreak than what you want. So not to discourage what you just said, because I totally agree and fully endorse that, especially reaching out to people that are open and reach out early. Just think about yourself and try to protect yourself as much as possible. That way you're not committing and working like your tail off for something that may not end up being yours. Yeah, to get it like something in writing, definitely want least to protect both right parties. At least first write a refusal that way. If they say, hey, I want to sell it and this is the price and you say, that's ludicrous, I can't pay that. At least let you know because there's been so many different times that I've heard the story of, well, I was going to buy it, but then it got sold out from under me basically. Or we talked about buying and I was looking at it, I was doing this stuff and then a bigger unnamed corporate office came in and offered enough. And they said, yep, sure, I'm ready to retire. They get a great payday. And then from their perspective, that's great. Like That's what they need to do. They want to get to the point where they don't have to work anymore. So it's hard to fault them. It's just, again, back to almost what you talked about with interacting with the clients. Like It's clear communication. Like Set your expectations and make sure everyone's on the same page. Because when you don't, that's when things go sideways. Exactly, exactly. 
everything always comes back to communication. Always, always, Relationships. always. <laughs> like, you bring my wife on here and she talk like, hey, communication, that's the key to making everything <laughs> work. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been kind of toying back and forth with two different last questions, but I'm going to ask you both of them. And the first one is mm-hmm. the soapbox topic or something that you're passionate about that maybe mm-hmm. we haven't talked about yet that is interesting that you feel like you'd like to share or have some thoughts on. A soapbox topic. Well, recently for me, that's been nutrition. We just actually had a food safety course a couple of weeks ago and the importance of nutrition and how that impacts your GI system and how that then dominoes to affect everything else. And, you know, the old phrase of you are what you eat has never been so accurate. I think that even human food, pet food, whatever, like it matters what you eat really matters and what you feed your pet really matters. I think a lot of people love their pets so much they give it all this food that they're not really supposed to give it just because the dogs go crazy over it and it makes them feel good. You get that sense that you really love your dog because you're giving it these things. And a lot of times that's doing the exact opposite of what you want it to do. So I think, again, communication on how to prevent disease prevention has been huge and the role of nutrition in preventative medicine, because the best way to mitigate disease is to prevent it. Like if you never get it, then you never have to do X, Y, and Z treatments to get out of it. Like if you never get in, you don't have to get out. So I think really focusing on education, communication, and prevention of disease. And like, this is how your dog should be active and they should be eating this amount and needs water, like all these things. And it's more of a full picture, not really just focusing on little things that they might get in the future, but how best to prevent them. And you can't prevent everything. A lot of things are genetic or, you know, can't get away from them really, especially with some breeds, but there are also ways to lower your risk. And I think that is something that sometimes gets overlooked is how to keep your pets as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And then you push off disease, you push off extra financial hardship, you push off extra stress on the patient and the client when everyone's more healthy. So I think we have to really emphasize like being like that healthy preventative medicine can really alleviate a lot of stress and hardship, both financially and medically from your clients and your patients. So for me, that's been huge. And I really want to someday when I get into clinics and practice to really emphasize like the healthier you are and the more you really focus on maybe a little bit more money and better quality food or a little bit more money on really figuring out what's good for your pet those little dollars and that little bit of money right now will save you possibly thousands of dollars on that future surgery. Or maybe like a preventative procedure now, like a gastropexy will save you a huge amount in emergency to not have to go do a GDV surgery on your dog if you do it when you spay or neuter them. So those kind of things, like not relying on just living how you are and then fix it when you get there, but kind of being aware to mitigate your risk as well as you can so that you don't have to deal with those things in the future. I love that. Thanks for sharing. The other thing for me is like, do you have a question for me? This is what I started asking guests because I swiped it from another podcast, but I actually found it very interesting. <laughs> and I was like, I like that. So yeah, anything, I, if nothing, that's totally fine. We can edit this out too and no one will ever hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, why veterinary medicine? Like what got you? I know you're like a certified financial planner and have your MBA. Like 
what drew you to veterinary medicine? Yes. So I would point anyone that wants the long answer, because I'll keep this short, to the one-year episode that I did, I think it's like 33. That kind of tells the why behind veterinary medicine. But for me, it was more or less a personal relationship in high school. He actually went to dental school at IU Dental School and just helping him kind of navigate some things. There was professional partners that worked in both and they kept saying, hey, would you want to meet this veterinarian? They have similar needs. And just realizing between dentistry and vet med, a lot of people in my position lean to dentistry because they make more money. Mm. But, 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 but I think that that's a huge mistake. And that's just a salary amount. Like that's still not solving the issues. I think so mm. many different people say, oh, well, veterinarians don't save as much. They don't have the investable assets. I can't work with them as a client. It's false. That's wrong. And that was really for me, what I want to do is build out a business around taking care of those people because A, people in veterinary medicine are awesome. So part of the podcast for me was education and then just getting to know more people. So you talk about networking, things that you do. This for me is like one of the best ways to network and also share like why I'm passionate about certain topics and also learning. Cause like today I learned a bunch from you and I always learn every time I have one of these interviews. So for me, it was, I see a need. I like the people and I like the ability of the, being the business owner because I personally own my own business. I've learned a lot going through that, went through a merger earlier this year. So like understanding those dynamics, I think I can then help other people as far as business owners. That's my passion. I want to help people get to that point if they want it. But at the same point, not twist their arm if they want to be an associate and they like the lifestyle of not having to work a ton or they want to work and do some other things. That's great. My job is to administer advice. But the why veterinary medicine was just the need, the people, and I like it. So it's been fun. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you decided to come to the dark side of veterinary medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely not the dark side. But you're talking about like human health and being rolled up into big hospitals and all that other stuff. Yeah, there's just a big difference when you look at it this way. And yes, sure, veterinary medicine's changing where there is more corporate versus just everyone's private practice. But there's still always a place for private practice in my mind. And I'm excited to be able to help support that. But also, I'm a fan of the good corporate offerings out there because there can be some really good solutions for the right person and helping people navigate that and and value themselves because I think that's the key. I think veterinarians undervalue their skill set too much. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. I don't know what it is about veterinarians, but they always, I don't think it's a confidence issue. I just think that people are almost a little like afraid to really voice what they're good at. And veterinarians are good at so many things. Like we're basically like the film crew of public health. We're always in the background, like making sure things don't go too wrong and like things don't explode. So it doesn't freak out everybody. And we don't have a public health crisis. Like there's so many veterinarians like working their butts off. And no one knows about it. You know, it's the same with the clinicians and stuff. I'm like, you are so good at what you do. Like you have all this amazing training that no other health professional gets. And that's huge. That's astronomically huge. Like the training that we get and all the inner species connecting. And like, I think veterinarians are the most inventive because we don't always have a textbook that has the answer. There are way too many species to know exactly what's going on in all of them. So The best MacGyver medicine comes from veterinarians because we have to be able to find a solution and maybe take a piece from this book or a piece from that book. And the species is similar. Like we can try it on this one too. Like there's a huge range of how veterinarians can practice and just the amount of ingenuity in our field is crazy. And I think it's like this amazing opportunity and people just don't see it as the value that it is that they should see. And I think now we're starting to see the salaries come up and be a little more representative of that. But 
our training is truly extremely unique and the opportunities and the ways you can use that training are really endless. So I'm so glad to see like everyone really starting to push that forward and starting to say, Hey, veterinarians can do this too, because people don't realize the kind of training that we get. Like we get public health, we get food safety, we get every animal from A to Z other than H for humans. So (laughs) all that can be cross multiplied and applied endlessly. And we can really be a vital asset in every situation. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. It's awesome conversation. And yeah, thanks, Shan, for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a blast today. (laughs) Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.